0: Hey, y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, CNN
1: senior political reporter Nia Malika Henderson and NBC White House correspondent Jeff Bennett. All right, let's start the show. Aunt Betty's going to freak out because I know she's seen both of y'all oh on my the God.
0: TV. That is so cool. I'm freaking out.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Aunt Betty. This is
0: like James Earl Jones saying my name. This is right. fantastic. Oh my God, I love gonna it. That's going to get to her it. head. Oh, <laughs> my goodness.
1: From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. I am taping the show this week from Washington, D.C. That means I have a guest with me here in person from D.C., Nia Malika Henderson from CNN. And also joining us from down the road at the White House Jeff Bennett, NBC White House correspondent. He's working out of the White House today. You both are hearing a mariachi remix of Baby Shark this week. Oh, this this yes. song has exploded. <laughs> oh my god! Let's pull it up so we can hear even more of it. Baby Shark. Doo-doo, 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 baby Shark. Doo-doo, 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 baby Shark. It's so
0: good. Yes, I know this. Thank one you for the well. earworm. As, as does my yes, niece. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, Jeff, you have a kid, right? Are you Baby Shark? Yeah, but he was too
2: old for the Baby Shark thing. I missed Baby Shark by a couple of years. Yeah. Thank oh, you. my goodness.
0: My niece, who's two, knows this song very well. And it's- she specifically shakes her little booty when she hears this song. <laughs> I, love, yeah.
1: it. I yeah. love it. So this version is by La Banda del Mango. It is a mariachi remix to Baby Shark. But I'm playing Baby Shark because this kid's song that's been sweeping the nation, it is now officially one of the top. 40 songs in the country. (laughs) Deservedly so. It's better than Barney. Remember those Barney songs like in the 90s and early 2000s? It's it's better than I used to like clean up, clean up everybody everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That one was good. (laughs) So anyways, this week it was announced that uh, the Baby Shark song Is uh, number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100 The 32nd most popular song in America
0: In climbing, I'm sure Yes, yes, it's
1: definitely climbing, which is crazy It was streamed more than 20 million times last week Uh, I want to play you guys the original so you can hear that one The original Earworm (laughs) It is catchy Yeah, it really is It's catchy So this version was made by a South Korean educational video company called Pink Fong. Um, And it really started to go viral over here when there was the Baby Shark Challenge where people would do the dance themselves on video, Mm -hmm. including people like Ellen. Uh, But I'm kind of annoyed that a song like this hits the Billboard charts because it shows how much the charts have changed over the years. Now they count things like social media likes. They count YouTube streams. So a song can make it big on the Billboard charts from YouTube now. So some 4-year-old asking, you know, his dad to hit <laughs> repeat on YouTube. Literally is sending and
2: Baby Shark yeah, up the yeah. Yes,
1: that sends the song up the charts. Um, I went down the Baby Shark rabbit hole this week and I actually found a German version from like 2007. In that version uh, it's a lot darker and at the end of the song the shark it like dies. eats a person. Oh god. <laughs> I want to play works. a little bit of that it for you. Yeah. Yeah. Baby
2: high. <laughs> it's really weird yeah, This yeah. sounds like the Migos version
1: of Baby
0: Shark <laughs> Baby Shark Totally
3: <laughs>
1: uh, and I now have to pivot to a much more serious topic The news of the week We are all going to describe our week of news in only three words, but because I know what y'all cover, and because I know what the news was like this week, all of our three words are going to focus on one topic. You know what it is. The shutdown. The shutdown, the border wall debate. It's been, what, almost three weeks of shutdown? Yeah. Yeah, it has been three weeks. And a really weird thing, not weird, sad thing I saw Friday morning was that paychecks went out to federal employees with an amount of zero dollars. Wow. So you still got a check, but it was just blank. And empty. maybe
0: for a second you, you, were, thought, hopeful, you were like, maybe. oh, and then the zero. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, and the- you
2: know what is so crazy about that? So there are, of course, those 800,000 federal workers who are directly affected. But then there are contractors, people who mm-hmm. work on contracts for some of these affected departments and agencies, mm-hmm. janitors, food service workers, security guards. They will never get paid. There is no mechanism
1: for them to get paid back. That's crazy. Well, we each have three words about this crazy, ever-evolving story. Uh, Jeff, because you're in the White House right now, (laughs) waiting to hear whatever the Trump White House says today, you get to go first. So my three words,
2: and they're alliterative because I figured why not. Yeah. uh, Symbolism, strategy, and suffering. Okay, unpack that. So the start with symbolism, because this deadlock has moved far beyond being about policy. This is really about politics, and it has Mm. been from the beginning. So, Mm. you know, funding the border wall is as much a personal victory for Donald Trump as blocking funding for it is for Democrats. Hmm. And the president all along has been concerned that if he makes a deal, if he compromises or if he's seen as caving, he would pay for that. He would pay the price for that. Strategy comes in. Because the White House and the president all along have miscalculated from the very beginning when Donald Trump said he would be proud to own the mantle of shutting down the government over border security. There were Republicans who were in shock over that because they saw that as an emotional reaction, not a tactical one. And ever since then, he's been trying to find a way out of this corner that he's painted himself into up until the point where he thought. That once Nancy Pelosi became Speaker, that she might be more inclined to do a deal. She, wait, he thought that she
1: would be more inclined. Yeah. Does he know there, who Nancy Pelosi is and, <laughs> and what and who, the, and in the caucus, yes. right? I mean, the most diverse right. caucus yeah. that you've
0: seen on the Democratic side. The Democrats send yeah.
2: people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez she's not to Congress. for a wall, right. right? Yeah. And at one point, they were trying to play Schumer and Pelosi against each other. That ain't happening. Well, exactly. Mom Another and Dad mis- are a
1: united front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of yeah. my favorite visuals of the dueling speeches about the wall this week was seeing disappointed Mom and Dad, Nancy and Chuck, <laughs> right. uh, yes. the giving their response.
0: Not the best staging. Yeah,
1: no. Jeff. We so um so your third word, Jeff, was suffering. What oh, do you mean by third that? Third word
2: was suffering for all the things we just talked about earlier about the federal workers who were, in effect, held hostage by all of this.
1: What I wonder in all of this is why Donald Trump feels so obligated to please his base on this issue because what I keep saying to myself is Donald Trump where is your base going? they're not right. going to go to someone else yeah they like
0: you exactly they like you and you're the one who said of your base that you yeah. could shoot someone on fifth avenue yes. and they wouldn't go anywhere yes and i actually believe that's true i mean not literally the p- part about shooting uh, somebody on fifth avenue but they are so emotionally attached yes. to this president yes that it's very unlikely that they would uh certainly they wouldn't vote they're for a democrat they're Mitt not gonna, exactly in exactly yeah
2: i think a couple of things account for this mm-hmm. one is that There really is no legislative agenda for the rest of the year beyond this wall, in Hmm. part because Democrats now control the House. So in many ways, this border wall, border security is the only game in town for the Trump administration. And every off ramp that his aides or allies have tried to give him, you know, by expanding the deal to include DACA, maybe that's something that Democrats can get behind. We can do that. He has shut it down. And what I can't figure out is, short of declaring a national emergency, what is the end game like what we, what 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 is the acceptable yeah. way out
1: yeah Nia, you have three words?
0: Oh, my three words, one hot mess. And, <laughs> Me every yeah, week. Yeah, right. And it really, I think, explains not only the situation that's going on here in Washington, mm-hmm. uh, it also explains the immigration system, right? Yeah. The, the What is going on at the border yeah. is basically these folks are coming up from Central America and they are fleeing a crime and drug-ridden, uh, gang-ridden areas and, mm-hmm. and countries that are basically corrupt and in the pockets of... Of a lot of these uh, drug cartels. And so they're fleeing uh, coming here, women and children, some mm-hmm. men obviously too, uh, and seeking asylum, right? And yeah. there's nothing illegal about seeking asylum. And the, 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 the courts are completely backed up in hearing cases. And so that's one of the fundamental issues yeah. that's going on. Of course, the president wants to paint it very differently.
1: Right you know, there have been moments in recent history where it felt as if Republicans and Democrats were close to something on immigration. When was the last time that happened? And what did that look like? Yeah,
0: that was 2013, right? That was right after the shellacking Mm. that came at the hands of the Republican Party or or, or was delivered to the Republican Party at the hands of Democrats in that 2012 election where Obama did so well with Mm. black and brown voters. And the idea then was, listen, as a Republican Party, we need to do better Mm -hmm. uh, with Latinos. So you had Marco Rubio. I remember that. Yeah. You remember Marco Rubio on the cover of Time magazine as, as the savior? Yeah. of the Republican Party, he didn't like that. He thought that sort of language, uh, Christian language, wasn't, wasn't great for him. Huh. But anyway, uh, so yeah, they came up with a pretty uh, comprehensive plan that would have a pathway to citizenship for the 11 or 12 million or so that would also include some border security It ended up passing the Senate with about 14 votes from Republicans, people like Hmm. Lindsey Graham, people like Marco Rubio, people who aren't around in the Senate anymore, like Corker and Flake and Heller and the late John McCain. So that was something that they felt like, okay, this is a great thing. But of course, it never made it to the the floor of of the House. And that was, you know, it was much more conservative.
2: That's the thing about immigration is that it is always been the third rail of our current politics, right? It gets even thornier when you have an administration, when you have a president who fudges with the facts. So that poisons the well of negotiation. And then if you add to the fact that the president started his campaign pitch by attacking undocumented immigrants... That's why Democrats are against the wall. It's not just the fact that they say it's bad policy. It's symbolic. They say Mm -hmm. it it is the physical representation of Donald Trump's anti-immigrant xenophobic campaign pitch. So that's why Democrats have been dug in all along, both on the substance of the thing and on the politics of it.
1: Are they smart to be as dug in as they are? Because if you look back in these Democrats votes, there have been Democrats before that have voted for border fencing and wall under President Obama, under President Clinton, under President Bush. Like this has happened before and Democrats like Hillary Clinton and Obama have supported it
0: one of the reasons they i think jeff hits on a great point here and, and you do too the idea that democrats do have a past of voting for some of these uh securing the fence act or or whatever and partly it's because they were dealing with a broker like george w bush right mm-hmm. who never demonized uh, immigrants illegal immigrants never was disparaging in the mm-hmm. way that donald trump is and that's the big problem here the they can't has be, changed. yeah i mean they can't be seen as a party that is essentially co-signing what they see as Donald Trump's racism.
1: Yeah, right, I have three words as well. They are all about race. Yeah, and both of you have already said that. Like in many ways, this debate over immigration and the wall is about race. But what I found really interesting this week is how, in both their addresses, a Trump. And I'm and, um, like, Democrats, they kind of stripped race from the debate. Um, we did hear Trump mention race briefly in his address from the Oval Office when he alleged that illegal immigration hurts blacks. Um, but after that, he didn't address it at all. And then Pelosi and Schumer talked about how the shut down certain Americans, but they didn't address race at all. Right. And I think it is impossible to have a truly candid conversation about Americans and immigration and a border wall, without talking about how our views on race and diversity and the Brown of America affect your views on immigration.
0: Yeah. And, and if you look at polling, the people who are most supportive of the wall mm-hmm. are white evangelicals. Yes. Right. And I think the, the white part of that white evangelicals is probably more important than, than the, the evangelicals evangelical. part of that. Yeah. The folks mm-hmm. who are least supportive of it are African-Americans and Latinos. Yeah. So there is this racial divide. There is also a sort of anxiety around the browning uh, of America. Yeah. That, quite frankly, and all the data show that from 2016, right? It wasn't an economic anxiety. It was cultural racial racial anxiety, and, cultural <laughs> yeah. anxiety right. yeah. and this idea that if you're white, you were going to be displaced. both economically and culturally uh, by people who didn't look like you.
1: Yeah, you know, there's countless data points that speak to this, but uh, the one that I was you know, looking at this week was this working paper from Stephen Miller of Clemson University, and he found- The other that, Stephen Miller. The other <laughs> Stephen Miller, <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he found that racial resentment is a much better predictor of your thoughts on immigration than any thoughts on economic anxieties. And I think that we are not doing our part as a country yeah. if we don't have a conversation that also speaks to that.
2: This is one of those things where I think Donald Trump benefits from the fact that he so often floods the zone with with statements and even scandal that you often forget what he's already said about a given topic. Huh. Remember when Donald Trump called the African nations s hole countries. The thing that he also said that oftentimes gets forgotten is that the next thought was, why can't we have more people from places like Norway, which I think is instructive. He was also on the record saying that one of the reasons why he doesn't like immigration, legal or otherwise, is because he thinks that immigrants vote for Democrats, which I think is also Mm. instructive. Mm. So those two things taken together, I think, explains his entire worldview when it comes to immigration.
1: Well, on that note, we'll take a quick break right now. When we come back, we're talking millennials and the unique factors that make us all, me included, feel so burnt out. All right, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR.
3: I'm Sam Sanders. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Discover Card. You check things all the time like your email or social media. But Discover asks, what about checking something as important as your credit score? Well, Discover makes it quick and easy with their credit scorecard, which is free for everyone, even if you're not a customer. See your FICO credit score and other important credit information. And once you know your score, you should check to see if your current credit card is the best fit for you. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, developing solutions to support strong families and communities to help ensure a brighter future for America's children. More information is available at aecf.org.
1: This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. I recorded an interview with Kevin Hart, after he said he's done talking about the controversy that led him to step down from hosting the Oscars. But we talked about that and about the line between edgy and offensive comedy. You can find that interview now in the Fresh Air feed. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, friend of the show and veteran of the show, Jeff Bennett, White House correspondent for NBC News. He is such a trooper. He is joining me right now from the White House. You're in the (laughs) – what is the room called? Don't even know. The the NBC White House booth. So you're like it's right behind the briefing room. Okay.
0: Tiny tiny booth. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
1: it's like an airline seat. Glad you're here. Yes, yes. And here in studio with me is Nia Malika Henderson, senior political reporter for CNN. Your first time here. I know. I'm so happy. Yeah, here. I hope
0: to become a friend of the show.
1: You already are. Yes, great. You already are. Um, so I want to talk to you both about a story you might have missed this week, as you were covering other <laughs> right. things. But my internet all week was consumed with conversation about one particular story from one reporter at one news outlet. Uh, I'm talking about this article from Anne Helen Peterson at BuzzFeed all about millennial burnout. Did you guys see this? Yeah. So the article is called how millennials became the burnout generation. And in this piece, Ann Helen basically argues that millennials are suffering right now from this unique and kind of constant state of burnout. Uh, that's really shaped by the economy and the internet and all these other kinds of things that are specific to how this group came of age. This article was big. It sparked dozens of response think pieces, thousands of tweets. BuzzFeed even made a quiz based on the article so we can all find out just how burnt out we are. I took the quiz. I got it. 33 out of 54 mildly burnt out. I want to take it. Take it, take it. Yeah, I'm
0: going to take this quiz. I'm
1: too burnt out to take the
0: quiz.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So all this to say there was a lot to understand unpack with this piece. So I called up Anne Helen Peterson to talk about all the buzz and the arguments that she uh, sparked with this story on burnout. Hey, how are you?
4: I'm great. How are you?
1: I'm good. So um, let's talk about that burnout and talk about your piece, which I've been seeing literally all over the internet for a good week now. What do you mean exactly by that phrase?
4: So I think that What I was conceiving of as burnout and what most people conceive of as burnout is something that you reach and then you recover from. Mm -hmm. And so I really rejected that I was dealing with burnout in any capacity. I was like, no, I'm not burnt out. Like, I'm just working. You know, I keep working. So I can't be burnt out. And what happened was that I started doing a lot of reading on burnout and on like why I couldn't get simple errands done, Mm -hmm. I came to realize that the way I was thinking of burnout was wrong that it, for millennials, and obviously for more than just millennials, but specifically for millennials, burnout has become our base temperature.
1: And it's like what I think you got at really well in the piece is that we simultaneously are overburdened by all these pressures and collapsing but also still working. Yes. And that that is the maddening <laughs> state that we're in.
4: Yeah, it's that you reach the point of collapse and then you keep going, you know? It's like you finish the marathon and then you start running another marathon.
1: Yeah, and, and, and like you you open so beautifully writing about how this can be manifested in what you call errand paralysis, like the small <laughs> things that we just can't do, you know, can't file the insurance claim, can't go to the post office. And I was like, oh my God, it's me.
4: <laughs> well, and the thing is like, that term sounds ridiculous, right? No, it totally like it does. it's like not like, like such a bourgeois problem, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, I can't like mail my thank you card. But I think that everyone has, a to-do list right in their mm-hmm. head written out whatever and there's a bottom half of that to-do list and everyone's is different mm-hmm. but what happens is that that bottom half keeps not getting done yes. and it, it weighs on you in a, in a way that you internalize shame or just like failure right it's like okay I'm like killing it in my job so why can't I do these other things that would either like make me feel good about myself or also you know like bring me closer to my family or make me a better citizen. (laughs) Like, you know, that sort of thing.
1: Or even like, how can I find 30 minutes away from my smartphone to do a chore?
4: Yeah, because you feel like I think oftentimes our being tethered to our phones. It's characterized as an addiction. And it's more that I feel like I have to be able to be accessible at all times to my boss. Like, I always need to be checking yes. Slack yeah. so that I can, you know, even if it's just to, like, put a little comment in there so they know that I'm working. Oh, Someone yeah. I know calls this, like, LARPing your job. You're like, <laughs> you're, you are you are live action role-playing your job. Yeah. And that is exhausting. It's <laughs> and and exhausting. that's why we're addicted to our phones.
1: You outline some yes. specific factors that affect millennials that lead to this type of burnout you know, for our generation. And you write about how we were expected to kind of grow up with better lives than our parents, to do better than them. And we grew up in this time of relative prosperity, but then we were working in this economy you know, post-recession where a lot of us are doing worse than our parents, mm-hmm. and that reality kind of also leads to this burnout? Explain that.
4: Yeah, I think that a lot of us entered the job force at a time when those entry-level jobs were no longer available. So trying to deal with that, right, trying to figure out, okay, what is my path? Is there a path? Just blindly looking for some way to keep afloat and, let you know, to find a job, let alone a career that will lead you towards something like a 401K or even the hope of ever retiring. That mental load is something that we have been dealing with for a long time. So I think that, like – we say that we're recovered from the economic downturn, and that that works differently depending on where you live in America, yeah. what profession you're in, you know, how much student loan debt you have, all sorts of things if you're helping support your parents. But at the same time, that means that, oh, some of us are finally getting job stability after 10 years. So we are mm-hmm. 10 years late, right? Yeah. Like we are starting adulthood. Late. At 33 or
1: 35. Well, and then also it's like, for me, I think a lot of it is the internet and our smartphones Mm -hmm. having us always plugged in while at the same time always comparing our lives to someone else's through like Instagram. But I don't know, like what's the biggest reason for you?
4: Mm, I mean... The Marxist in me says capitalism, (laughs) but I don't think we're going to overthrow capitalism. I (laughs) think a lot of it has to do with just the veneration of labor and also like an old-fashioned Protestant work ethic, which says (laughs) that like suffering is good. So that's really, really root and -hmm. also speaks to the fact that like, A lot of the criticism of the piece is that, you know, this is something that all generations experience. And I I absolutely agree with that, that burnout is not something that is unique to millennials by any means. But I think as you point out, there are all of these specific factors, Mm -hmm. including, you know, growing up into the digital, like into lives that are incredibly mediated in a way that no generation has before us. Um, But also understanding like most of us have that before and after with digital technologies. Like I had a college experience where I had, you know, email, but we checked it twice a day and then I have my experience now so I can see how my life has changed. Exactly.
1: What are the like specific cures or remedies that you see? Like talking specifically about how to fix this problem, what is it for you?
4: Well, I think, you know, um, a, there was just a piece uh, published in The New Republic by a friend of mine who actually has been thinking about burnout for a long time. His name's John Malciak, and he burnt out of academia. He had a tenure-track job and just left it. Hmm. And what he writes about is that it's not just about curing burnout on yourself or trying to think about how can I alleviate these behaviors in myself, the real solution is thinking about how can I not create burnout in others as well? Uh. So what things are you doing as a manager, as a member of a family, as a friend that are making others burnt out? And I think that- Like what? Like- Like, from the managerial perspective, not even just, oh, I don't expect you to email me back, but just there is no email after this time. Like, we will deal with it when we get into the office. Yeah. Or trying to rely more on -on one-on-one communication, which actually, like, as much as uh, millennials hate the phone or hate, like, you know, Skyping in person and that sort of thing, like, it takes less time and also, I think – creates less stress because it's easier to be explicit and to to not read other things into what someone's mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. So there are things like that, but also just in the home, you know, like I think a lot of women I know have shown their partners that mental load cartoon that I reference in the piece yeah. that's about it's not just about dividing chores. It's about who is carrying the mental load of trying to, like, make all the trains come in on time in our family home so once you make the other partner in the relationship aware of that, mm-hmm. they can be much more mindful about trying to help you with that as well. So, yeah, I know that's all abstract, but I really do think that like just talking about it and having language to talk about it explicitly is incredibly helpful.
1: Well, I have to say uh, I'm so glad that we had this talk. It has been the yes. buzz of my social circles all week. When we told NPR that we were going to talk to you for this piece, a fellow producer for a different show, said, quote, Oh, good, please talk to her. I've never read anything that spoke so clearly to my deepest soul. (laughs) So your work is working. (laughs) Uh,
4: Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye
1: Bye-bye. Many thanks again to Anne Helen Peterson for talking with me about her BuzzFeed article all about millennials and burnout. So what did you guys think about that?
0: The the article was interesting. I didn't really relate to it, and I couldn't figure out if it's because I'm a Gen Xer,
1: mm-hmm.
0: if I'm black, or because I I kind of grew up very working class. Because a huh. lot of I felt like there were a lot of markers of class in it. Like at yeah. one point she yeah. said, um, you know, her to do list included getting knives sharpened, and I was like, I didn't know. I mean, is that are you taking your knives out to get sharpened? Is that like a thing? A thing. I do, yeah, That's I king. I didn't know like. <laughs> So in that way, I couldn't necessarily relate. Yeah. But the whole idea of burnout, my goodness, last night um, as I was, you know, as I was prepping for, for work, my girlfriend came down and she basically said, babe, I'm about to go to bed. Mm-hmm. And I said, really? It's 830. Are you sure? You yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I think, you know, this is burnout. She's a doctor. She works very hard. Also, you're uh, so, still working at 830. Yeah, I'm <laughs> still working at 830. But and she wants to go to bed at 830. And I think at our age, you know, going to bed at
1: 830 <laughs>
0: is probably the norm. and maybe recommended for some of these millennials who might be burning the midnight oil (laughs) a little bit much. You got to sleep, Um, kids. Yes, get to sleep.
1: Uh, So, Jeff, you saw the article?
2: Yeah, and I am a millennial, and I will have to say that millennials don't own a monopoly on burnout. But I think the thing here is sort of the cult of expectation, right? I think a lot of us grew up assuming that by the time you hit 22, 23, you'd be the CEO of some Fortune 500 company, (laughs) right? And so if that doesn't happen... What is wrong with you? It only means you have to work harder. The thing I've learned in my sort of edge of millennial <laughs> is that you just got to focus on the work. Focus on the work. Trust the process. When you give <laughs> up on it's the, like the 76ers, social climbing, so yes. the ladder climbing, stuff starts to open up to you. And if you aren't an entry-level CEO when you graduate from college, you'll
1: be okay. You know, I read the article, and I'm 34. Yeah. I'm an old millennial. And I I was like, oh, she gets me.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you have to get your
1: knives sharpened. <laughs> I know, he's going to do it. That's what he's
0: doing after the show. Exactly.
1: But, you know, she talked candidly with me about knowing that the way that she wrote that piece was just from her yeah. perspective as an upper class white woman. And, you know, there's there's this burden nowadays to make sure that the one thing that you make speaks to everyone. Mm-hmm. And she's grappling with that. And, and she knows that she's writing as a privileged white woman. But I also know and she also knows that we would all hate it even more if she tried to write the perspective of a black person. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think the issue is and it's great to have her voice out there. I think the issue is, are these the only voices that are out there? But listen, she clearly is from a different background. And and my goodness, the article was so well researched and so. And she's a brilliant uh, writer, Yeah, brilliant writer, clearly a a a super achiever. Yeah. 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 You know,
1: it's funny. We talked about solutions for Mm -hmm. this problem. And one of the things she told me that she finds helpful is that before she goes to bed, she puts the phone on airplane mode Mm -hmm. and then she reads a book. Yeah. Yeah. Because something about reading a book, it 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 doesn't hurt your brain as much as that constant scroll of social media. That's right,
0: yeah. You know, and for
1: me, I really think the root of all of this evil and all this young people burnout is social media and our phones. Our brains aren't wired for that constant bombardment of stuff. Yep. And whenever I feel like it's becoming too much, I turn the phone off and leave it in the other side of the room for a few hours. Yeah,
2: it's true, because for so many people, the phone is the first thing you turn to in the
1: morning, and it's the last thing you see at night. Exactly. So the article is called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. All right, time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game,
3: Who Said That? Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
1: Hey, it's Guy Raz here, and on the next How I Built This, how two women with no background in fitness set up some stationary bikes, dimmed the lights, boosted the music, and created a cult following in a multi-million dollar business called SoulCycle. You can find How I Built This wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two great guests, Jeff Bennett, White House correspondent for NBC News, and Nia Malika Henderson, senior political reporter for CNN. It is time for my favorite game. Who said that? Ooh, MS, Basically, I share three quotes from the week. you got to tell me who said it or get a keyword from the story. Then you get a point. Uh, the winner gets, as you know, absolutely nothing. <laughs> Speed yes. round because Jeff has to run. He's at the White House right now. First quote is, It is false and defamatory to suggest that blank does not use cutlery or does not wash his hands. Also, it is false and defamatory to suggest that blank lives or has ever lived in a basement, cupboard, or under the stairs.
0: God, I have no idea.
1: (laughs) Someone who's always fighting with media. Donald Trump? Uh, Someone who's linked (laughs) to Trump and linked to Russia and linked to leaks about Russia. He lives in an embassy somewhere. Oh, Oh, yeah. What's, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Julian Assange. Julian Assange. Julian Assange. Wow, we are horrible. It's
1: okay. I will give that point to neither of you. (laughs) Uh, his legal team this week gave a long list of things they want the media to stop saying about him because they say uh, that those false and defamatory statements uh, hurt him. As we know, Assange has been locked up in an Ecuadorian embassy in London since June 2012. And there's been reports that it's kind of nasty in that embassy where he stays. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Lives in a basement cupboard or <laughs> under the stairs. Poor Julian. <laughs> I know. All right. Zero zero. Next quote. The sponsors of events need to get permission from people when they get them to take their picture next to products.
2: Oh, I know this one. Tell me. Jamie Lee Curtis next to yes! wow! Fiji Girl. Nice! Fiji
1: lady. Jamie Lee Curtis, oh, Fiji, the actress, right. was one of the many actresses at the yeah. Golden Globe's Red Carpet who was uh pictured with that Fiji bottled water woman. Yeah. This was the young model who was carrying bottles of Fiji. I saw that, yeah. Behind all the actors mm-hmm. and actors at the at the red carpet. In an Instagram post this week, Jamie Lee Curtis said, I didn't like that. She said you should get permission before you put this <laughs> SponCon right behind me. I did yeah, wonder how the I Fiji don't. woman ended up on the red carpet, not just standing
2: there, but standing there with a tray of Fiji water. And a pose yeah, for the ages. Yeah, it's, yeah I mean opposed. it's product
0: Yeah, product placement at its finest. She did her job. Right. Yeah, that's what she, she was. She did her to job. Do. Yeah.
1: And I I may have bought a bottle of Fiji yeah, water. Yeah, I mean, such an of...
0: iconic, yes. you know, bottle of water. Yes. Yeah, Fiji yes.
1: water is the best bottle of yeah. water I have to say. Ready, last quote. You both will know this. So here I am at the dentist.
2: Uh,
0: Beto. Beto O'Rourke.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Beto O'Rourke, former Texas Democratic congressman and potential 2020 candidate for president, he has been Instagramming live, uh, which everyone else is doing these days. Yeah. But this week he had an Instagram live of him in the dentist chair getting his teeth possibly on. jumping
0: the shark. It
1: was, on a Instagram. It was a bit much. Was
3: a bit much. Oh. Um. So I'm here at the dentist, and we're going to continue our series on the people of the border. I'm here with Diana. I,
2: you know what? Here's the, when I saw it, when I saw it, Diana's I saw it first on his Instagram feed, and I was like, "Oh, that's <laughs> pretty funny. The guy has nice teeth. Good for him." <laughs> okay. And it wasn't until I went to Twitter and saw all of the hate, and I was like, oh, "Okay." Yeah. Like yeah. can. Can Beto live a little bit? I mean, it was a bit much. It's, so,
0: it's, sort, of, it's sort of overdue for Beto, though, right? Yeah. he's, you know, he's, he's been a golden child long. for he's so long. He's been a golden child. So this is At some sort point, of first... you all
1: get knocked down a yeah. bit. Yeah, you know? So he was doing this. It was this dispatch from El Paso, Texas, where he's from. He's been trying to highlight voices from the border. And his dental hygienist, Diana lives in the region and was talking to his followers about life on the border. So it was for For a a
0: good cause. (laughs) But we probably didn't need that shot. It was Diana from El Paso. Yeah, Yeah. it
1: was something. Uh, Well, I hope that you're smiling there showing your teeth, Jeff, because you won. (laughs) Said that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. What do I get? Sharpen knives.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I want a rematch. Want a rematch.
1: We're gonna end the game and say bye to Jeff because, from what I understand, you're due for a live hit on NBC. I have to go right run to television now. Okay, bye, Jeff. Bye, Jeff. It was so good to have you here. See y'all. Now it's time to end the show. As we do every week, we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that happened to them all week. We
3: encourage folks to brag. Brent hit the tape. Hi Sam, it's Steven from Blacksburg, Virginia. The best thing to happen in my week was yesterday I got to help one of my students get their first state ID. This student hasn't had a state ID and is 19 years old and to see the joy on his face when he came out of the DMV reminds me of why I do my work. Love the show. Thanks.
4: Hey Sam, this is Riley from Burlingame, California. The best part of my week was that I got into one of my top choices for grad school in occupational therapy.
2: I finally landed my dream job as a software developer in my dream city, Chicago, Illinois.
4: I got my very first puppy.
2: My first scientific paper is accepted for publication without revision.
4: Hi Sam, this is Christina in Austin, Texas. And the best thing to happen to me all week was that I got to fly to Chicago and surprise my best friend for her baby shower. And I sewed together a quilt made of her 30-year-old baby blanket. And it was beautiful, if I do say so myself. And it was so good to be there.
0: Hi, Sam. It's Marcy in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. In late October, one of your listeners shared the best thing that happened to her that week, which was hearing back from her AP English teacher after 15 years. Well, after 44 years and decades of thinking about Jeannie Goddard and wanting to tell her how much she inspired me. I sat down that afternoon and I wrote her a letter. Yesterday, I got a response in the mail. Jeannie and I live in the same state. She's invited me to come and visit for have a cup of tea and I'm intending to do that. None of this would have happened if it hadn't been for your podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Have a good week. Bye.
0: I like that. Really great. That was really sweet.
1: Many thanks to the voices you heard there. Steven, Riley, Paul, Laura, Theo, Christina, and Marcy. And also thanks to all of you that sent me a ton of dog photos all week. I love (laughs) them. We're going to go out on another remix of Baby Shark. This is an R&B remix by Desmond Dennis. Listen, it's so good. I want a gospel version. Right? They've got I want a Yolanda a gospel. Adams yes, okay. gospel please, version. Please. It would be amazing. Yes, yes. Uh, so many thanks to my guests today. Uh, Jeff Bennett, White House correspondent for NBC News. Nia Malika Henderson, senior political reporter for CNN. This week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry with editing help from Alex McCall. Uh, Steve Nelson is our director of programming. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Um... Our big boss is NPR's Senior VP of Programming here at NPR. Her name is Anya Grundman. Listeners, refresh your feed Tuesday morning for my chat with Dan Levy. You know him from his role as David Rose on, I promise you, one of the funniest shows I've seen in years. It's called Shits Creek. We talk about how Dan Levy had the idea for the show and how he got the idea by watching Spoiled Brats on reality TV. We also talk about why he made his character on the show pansexual. That chat's in your feed on Tuesdays. All right, till next time, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon and stay tuned right now for one more Baby Shark remix from a very special friend of the show, our editor Jordana's son, Ian. Okay. Drink.
4: Some water to drink some water
1: to drink some water Eat some chicken to eat some chicken to eat some chicken, have some melon have some melon, to have some melon. Have some have some some rice do 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 have some rice do do do
0: do have some rice that's good honey